Revelation. We're looking at verses 7 through 11 this morning. I'd have liked to finish with verse 7 last week, but we ran out of time, so we'll look at verse 7 um, this morning, but we, we won't need the whole time for that verse, so we'll jump into the next section there, which begins a, a lengthier vision of the Son of Man. However, right at 11, there is a, a, a good place to break because it, it, um, it really 9 through 11 is the commissioning for John to write, right? to write the vision that he sees, and then he'll... He'll receive the beginning of that vision, really verses 12 through 20 of the Son of Man. But throughout this this first section here, John's reliance upon the book of Daniel has been consistent. We've we've mentioned how he is constantly referring to the Old Testament throughout Revelation, and and he depends for much of this on, on Daniel. It's one of the more frequent allusions he'll make. Um. And I think the reasoning is because the, the, the situation they were in would have been similar, right? Israelites being exiled to Babylon would have been similar during Daniel's time as the first century believers who potentially many of them being, having been exiled to that region as believers um, who would have needed to be encouraged uh, to persevere under what was an escalating persecution from Rome. So there would have been um, an f- anxious feeling about what the future held. Uh, there were good reasons for them to worry. Right? Persecution was, was already intensifying around them. And really, even as of today, I believe we have not seen the worst of that persecution. At the same time, there's a, a, a great message of, of hope right, for the victory in Christ the victory that Christ has achieved for them in this passage, just as there was in the book of Daniel as well. Right? The, the vision of the Son of Man receiving authority over all the nations. So before we read this passage, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this book that is meant to warn, but also to encourage to warn and comfort. Lord, we pray that you would do that to, for us uh, this morning, that we would heed the warning, whether it's for ourselves, maybe we've been living in defiance of you and your commands, or maybe it's a, a warning for a persecution that will come or a trial that we will face and have to endure together, Lord, as a body. May we enjoy the kind of fellowship and unity that you call us to, that we see witnessed here by the relationship between John and his audience. And Lord, help us to anticipate the return of Christ with great expectation and hope. It's in his name we ask it. Amen. Read with me, Revelation chapter 1, verses 7 through 11. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on the count of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. 
I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, we'll begin with this verse 7 looking at the return of Christ. So if you're following along in your outline there, the first, first blank is the return, the return of Christ. This is the final idea that describes um, Jesus in reference, it's a, Jesus in reference to his return here from the greeting. Um, the description of Jesus began in verse 5, and then it, it, con- it concludes there in verse 7. Remember, remember verse 8 we talked about last week as a reference to God the Father. And so we will jump ahead to verse 9 after this. But we, we expect now Christ to return in the same way that he ascended. Remember when he ascended in Acts chapter 1, verse 11, he was, he was brought up beyond the clouds, and they watched him ascend in the same way we can expect him to return. It begins here with he is coming with the clouds. The clouds are oftentimes associated with divine travel, not just in biblical literature, but outside. In in ancient literature, you have gods traveling um, with the clouds. And so it speaks of his divine attributes, his divine qualities. This passage combines a reference to the Son of Man, which would come from Daniel 7.13, who was ascending to the Ancient of Days and where he receives all authority and dominion. That's that's combined then with a passage from Zechariah, which we'll look, out, we'll look at shortly. But both passages are dealing with different contexts, right? They combine to portray Christ's return from, from the glory of heaven, right? A, a description of his ascension into heaven is then used to describe his return from heaven, and that's combined with a, another text, with, with Zechariah, um, which portrays the reaction of the people to Christ's coming. Right? So, so the first phrase helps us to see Christ's return as a glorious event that displays his divine attributes. We're already imagining that, that Christ is, is, is coming from heaven. And then secondly, we read that every eye will see him. In Sunday school, I pointed out that this, this really eliminates the possibility of this being a secret rapture. Right? This is not Christ coming in secret. This is Christ coming very visibly, where every eye will see him. And yet it's consistent with what we read in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, which is sort of the, the, the great rapture passage, where we read, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. So if you have every eye seeing him here in Revelation 1.7, there you, can, you might say every ear will hear him. Right? It's a loud coming. His coming is visible, it's public, it's, it's, it's not meant to be secret. Both passages re- portray Christ's return as not being a secret. His return is a single event that every eye will see and every ear will hear. The return of Christ is never portrayed as a secret anywhere in Scripture. Thirdly, you have all tribes of the earth will wail. This is where we get this reference to Zechariah 12.10 and the reaction of the people to Christ's return. And this is specifically 
in Zechariah 12.10, it's, it's, it's a promise given to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem who will look upon him whom they have pierced and they shall mourn for him. Now notice how this promise was specifically given to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. But how does John apply it? He speaks of the wailing of all tribes of the earth. There is no way that you can interpret that phrase there as only referring to Jerusalem, right, or Israel. It's a reference to everyone. It's a universalization. And we talked about that several weeks ago, how John applies um, this principle, which you might call the universalization principle, where passages or promises um, or even judgments from the Old Testament are then applied universally to the world or to the church universal. John frequently broadens the application of the Old Testament to apply to the world. He's not, he's not using some rogue hermeneutic. It's not some ingenious interpretation of these passages. Jesus himself does this. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 30, he applies these exact same two, same two texts in the same way that John does here. He applies them universally to the mourning of all the tribes of the earth. And so, so this is something, in fact, this particular allusion he learned from Christ himself. Once the nations recognize Jesus coming in his sovereign glory and power, they will wail from their own rebellion against him in unbelief. Now, some interpret Zechariah 12.10 as referring to a, a mourning that leads to repentance or a mourning of repentance. And there is some, some validity to that interpretation because Ze the context of Zechariah 12.10 does describe salvation. And if you read it, the verses surrounding it, it's speaking of the salvation of Israel. Um, and they would say that it's saying he, they're wailing on account of him. It's not because of their own actions. They're wailing on account of, of Christ. So they would take that as a, as a positive thing. But as we've seen, John is combining phrases from two completely different contexts. One of Christ's past ascension and one of a future salvation for Israel in order to point to a third context, which is unique as well, right, of, of Christ returning rather than ascending to, his, uh, to the world. And, and that indicates that the, the, the wailing here might be of a different kind, right? It's a, a future regarding Christ's return in judgment. Much of the language in this Revelation 1, especially as we get to the description of the Son of Man next week that follows, it's, it's of judgment, it's language of Christ coming in judgment. And remember um, when Vern Poitras was here uh, several months, well, several weeks ago now, he, he titled his message from uh, verses 12 through 20, uh, Meet the Judge of the Universe. And so it's, it's very clearly a description of judgment that's taking place here. It would make sense that he's, he's prepping us by talking about that um, judgment here in verse 7. He's preparing for that vision. It's simply not possible to take all three of the contexts from these passages and make them line up perfectly. Right? They are radically different contexts, so we don't need to, it's not necessary for us to try to, to make this a salvific statement or a, a mourning of repentance. So in light of that, this verse also poses a challenge, though, to, to those who would see the return of Christ as a spiritual return 
or a return that took place in AD 70 with the destruction of Jerusalem. Because what they see here is, is instead of every eye, they would interpret it as every eye in Israel or in Jerusalem. And the judgment that follows is a description of judgment that falls only upon Jerusalem. And so they're limiting it in other ways. They, they limit every eye and all tribes of the earth just to Israel, which I think is, is um, very clearly not what the text is doing. So they, and not only do they limit those, those phrases, every eye and all tribes to Israel, but they also see the judgment as simply a local judgment when the judgment that's described in all of these passages is universal. So it requires a very creative reading, I think, to, to get from this text to make it fit into a local and a limited judgment that's not described in, in any of these passages. So this, this truth regarding Christ's future judgment or future coming in judgment leads John to a statement where he says, even so, amen. Even so really is just vi in the Greek, which is yes. Yes, amen is what he responds to this idea of Christ coming in judgment. It doesn't mean that John is like gleefully looking forward and delighting in the demise of the world. I don't think that's what he's describing here, but he's acknowledging his agreement with the justice uh, that Christ will bring at his return. So Christ's return means, means a final victory over sin and evil. And believers should be unashamed when declaring it. If we have been humbled to repent and believe in Christ, we will be unashamed to declare amen upon his return. Right, to say amen at the second coming of Christ requires a spirit-empowered humility that sees even our, our best deeds as requiring the cleansing blood of Christ. Right, to even be humbled ourselves in order to say amen, to look forward to his return in judgment, is to recognize the role that justice plays in his return. Daniel Webster was a, a skilled orator. He was recognized as one of the finest attorneys in his day within this nation, and he was becoming an increasingly influential politician. He served eight years in Congress while he was also an attorney, 20 years in the Senate, and four years through two, two different terms as a Secretary of State, two, two years under John Tyler and two years under um, someone else. But the, the, the point is he, he was growing in his influence. He was recognized as a great orator, a skilled speaker. And on his deathbed, his doctor read him his, one of his favorite hymns by William Cooper, There is a fountain filled with blood. And the final stanza says this, Then in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save. When this poor, lisping, stammering tongue lies silent, in the grave. I think about that, that as he's listening to this, that with, with a tongue that is recognized as being one of the, the, the best among humans, right? one of the least feeble and stammering tongues you will find, Webster declares in a very strong voice, amen, amen, amen. And it only gets sweeter at his return. And we should be so humble and bold to declare the same thing, right, about Christ's return. Again, we covered verse 8 
last week. And so we'll jump ahead to verse 9 here, speaking of the apostle of Christ. So you have the return of Christ in verse 7, and then the, the apostle of Christ described here in verses 9 and, and the beginning of 10. John designates himself as the author without any uh, need to distinguish himself from other Johns. It's clear he's the apostle who would have been well-known among this region. Um, but notice the first thing he says, I, John, your brother. This is a significant address, a significant statement. John considers himself to be a brother to the believers in Asia Minor. Right, this is a tremendous advancement within a single generation. No longer does John see Gentiles as a separate group. Right, they're always to be distinguished from Jews such as himself. Right off the bat, he's declaring his, his solidarity with them, his, his unity with them. He can acknowledge without hesitation that these Gentile believers are true spiritual brothers in the faith. That means that he sees their equal access to the inheritance that they would enjoy. They're not assigned a lesser role in the kingdom. They're not distinguished as having a, 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 a different plan from Jews. Very clearly, he's associating himself with them. And they have, in fact, become partners through all of it. And that's what he'll, he'll speak of. The part, they're partners in tribulation and in the kingdom and in the patient endurance that are in Jesus. So let's look at those three partnerships. First of all, he's, he's a partner with them in tribulation. There is a solidarity among those who are suffering for the sake of Christ. After the Apostle Paul was stoned and left for dead in Lystra, he went on to preach the gospel in Derby. And then he meets, after meeting some success in Derby, he and Barnabas return to Lystra. Um, and this is recorded in Acts 14.22. And it says this, they strengthened the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. And saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So we're partners in this tribulation. The tribulation that Paul just went through in that region, he's now saying we, we must go through this. We must go through tribulation in order to enter into the kingdom of God. That is the gospel pattern we find throughout Scripture. It's suffering followed by kingdom, right? Or suffering and kingdom going together. Suffering and reigning with Christ. John considers himself a partner in both Christ's suffering as well as his kingdom ministry. And that's what he says next, partner in kingdom. Now, last week we discussed the priestly role, right? the idea that believers have re they, we've become a priesthood of believers. But this emphasizes their kingly role, that we are united into this kingdom that Christ has brought us into. And it's a kingly role that we receive throughout this present age. If Christ was given dominion and authority over the nations upon his ascension, as recorded in Daniel chapter 7, and in, it's also reiterated in 1 Peter 3, that kingdom was also given to the people of the saints of the Most High. So the, the same authority and dominion that he received, he also is united with the believers, with the saints of the Most High as their possession. That's, that's what he describes in Daniel chapter 7. He receives that authority, and then he shares that authority with his saints, with his brothers and sisters in Christ. 
So we have become partners with Christ and with one another in the kingdom of God that Jesus has ushered in at his first coming. However, there's also a future component to this kingdom, right? Christ's kingdom is promised in the future to all believers who persevere in their faith. We'll see this as a promise given to the churches. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 21, it says, the, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So there's a, a present and a future component to our kingdom partnership. We are in the kingdom of God by virtue of our submission to Jesus as Lord. That's described throughout the gospels as he says, the kingdom has come, the kingdom is among you. Right? As, as we submit to Christ, we become a part of that kingdom. We become united and partners in it. But there's also a future and a fuller kingdom participation that awaits. Right? This is all very consistent with the, the concept of the already and the not yet aspect of, of prophetic revelation. So we're partners in the tribulation. We're partners in the kingdom or in the kingly role and then thirdly, we're partners in the patient endurance that are in Jesus. So we can see this endurance in terms of a relation to the, the persecution that they were already experiencing as we read the, the letters to the churches in chapters 2 and 3. We'll see several references to some persecution that they've already experienced. In fact, uh, someone is mentioned as being martyred in one of the verses, and in other places they're, they're, they're receiving um, you know, some light persecution. But there's also a preparation for them about the persecution that will continue to escalate in the future. Uh, Revelation 13 and 14 would describe some of that kind of persecution, of future persecution. So just as tribulation and kingdom go together, so now enduring and reigning go together in John's mind here. Those who suffer with Christ in tribulation will reign with Christ in glory. That's the promise that he's given here in this verse. This is, um, this is what we should take away from this passage, right? To reflect upon that. Those who suffer with Christ in tribulation will reign with Christ in glory. And John himself is an example of this, right? He has been exiled to Patmos. Church history informs that, th that just before his exile, he was ministering. He was a pastor in Ephesus. And so as uh, the resident apostle in this region... He was likely seen as a mentor to all the pastors in the area and even a, a, a resource to the believers there. Uh, and this area of Asia Minor was a growing, influential region. Think about how precious this verse would have been for those believers. They missed their, their partnership with John. He missed them. Uh, he was likely over 80 years old when he was exiled to Patmos. That would have meant he was uh, in his late teens when Christ resurrected and he visited him and at the tomb. He's you know, running with Peter to the tomb. He's in his late teens, a young man, and now he is well-aged and seasoned in ministry and he loves his church. And so he misses that partnership and they miss him. And during the, the reign of Domitian, it was not uncommon for, for Rome to punish those who were socially disruptive by exiling them sending them to Patmos where they would work in stone quarries, right? digging up ore. So it's possible that that was precisely what John was sent to do during this time. Um, probably he was sent there 
for denouncing emperor worship, which was on the rise in this very region. And church historian Eusebius tells us that after Domitian's death, his successor, Nerva, annulled all of the sentences of Domitian, which allowed John to then return to Ephesus and finish out his ministry there. So as we conclude, let's, let's consider the, the church of Christ that's described in, primarily there in verse 11. But John, it says in verse 10, that he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. This is a, a reference to Sunday. Now, the early church began to call the first day of the week, this is the very first reference that we find, but the early church began to use this phrase to speak of uh, Sunday as the Lord's day. This was the day that they gathered for worship and communion. We read that in Acts chapter 20, verse 7. Every Sunday it said that they broke bread together and they took an offering for the needs of the church in 1 Corinthians 16, 2. So maybe John is spending this Lord's day in prayer and he's remembering the saints to whom he ministered to in Ephesus when he receives this vision, right? When he hears this loud voice like the sound of a trumpet declaring to him. And so from Patmos, um, in fact, can you jump ahead to the, the next slide there? I just want to show you the region here. Because Patmos is, the, is, is an island just off of the region. You have Asia Minor represented here, and Patmos is this island where John is writing Revelation from, and he's writing it to Christians. And the churches that are represented there in verse 11 are Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So you can see there's almost this, this circular form to it, and it's in progression. It would, it would follow along a route that someone would, would take this revelation through, right? They would take the letter, first of all, to Ephesus, and then read it there, and then move on to the next section. That, that revelation would be shared with the region. But the, um, the gospel came to this region at Ephesus, so Paul's third missionary journey in 53, between 53 and 57 AD, uh, he spent three years during that time planting the church in Ephesus. And then eventually that, the gospel spreads to these other regions, to these other churches. And he passes that leadership on to Timothy. So this would make John Timothy's successor. And John goes to Ephesus replacing Timothy if history is accurate. Uh, now, the rough circular route that these churches form possibly implies that there's centers of distribution. Right? This, this whole region would have been influenced by those, uh, those regions. They're, they're growing regions. Ephesus really being in a prime location there because it, it's right on the coast, but also for the, the message to be spread out. So it's not that this message is only going uh, to these churches. It's going out throughout the world from this location. Um, the New Bible Commentary says this, the cities are both postal and administrative centers. It's been reckoned that at the time of John's writing, this area had the greatest concentration of Christians in the world. In addressing these churches, John could reach not only others in Asia Minor, but those who had been scattered throughout the world. Okay, so as I've already pointed out, there were other churches in Asia each one of them had been promised a blessing for reading and hearing and keeping this revelation, as we saw in verse 3. And so this prophecy would have quickly multiplied beyond this, uh, these initial seven congregations, um, which was always the intent. Right? This is meant for us as well. 
So no congregation is mentioned again after chapter 3. Right? It's, 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 not, it's no longer mentioned because the idea from 4 and on is about the universal church very clearly. Right? It's a universal judgment, universal blessings and promises to the church. And so we can, we can also imply that the same can be read from, verses, or from chapters 1 through 3. So let's, let's conclude with this idea um, that thinking about the, um, the promises in this passage for those who, who repent and believe in Jesus, that they've been united to him in his suffering and in his exaltation. It's, it's because of what Christ uh, has done that we can face tribulation with great hope. And, and it's also because of what Christ has done, that we've been united to this community of believers, which he describes here as partnerships. The solidarity that John felt for his fellow believers was not forced. And he, he thought of them as family. They were his brothers and sisters in Christ. And as partners, it implies an active pursuing of that unity an active participation together in the calling that God had given them. So I just want to ask some questions for us to think about here in application of this. We should see parallel patterns in our own relationships within the church, right, with one another. Are we partners in one another's trials? When one goes through tribulation, when one goes through hardships, are we partners in that? We ought to be less and less interested in discovering the latest gossip, what's going on with so-and-so, right? but more and more seeking to genuinely know each other and to love one another. Do we partner together for kingdom ministry with the unified goal of glorifying God and enjoying him forever? Is that our mission? Are we unified in that mission? Or do we avoid ministry opportunities because we can't get along with a particular person who might be present. And let us pray for the patient endurance that is in Jesus Christ so that we might truly experience the kind of fellowship and partnership that we're called to have in this passage. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this promise, this reminder that, that although we do suffer with Christ, we also are promised to reign with him in glory. We know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord and that we immediately are united to him in that exaltation. We are a, it is a better place for us to be, as Paul describes. We would far rather be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Lord, may that be our longing, may that be our hope, and yet as we endure, as we persevere through trials, help us to see the partnership that we have with one another, that we don't do this alone. Certainly Christ is united with us, but we also are united to one another so that we can be open about our challenges, about our trials, our struggles. We can also not shy away from one another, even when there's difficulties and in relationships, and strained relationships. Lord, help us to, to overcome those because of our unity with Christ, because of our unity in him. Help us to be partners in the tribulation, partners in the kingdom, 
partners in the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Lord, as we respond now in gratitude for what Christ has done for us, Lord, help us to see him more clearly and to see our role and calling to imitate him in obedience as part of being brought into this family, into this community. And may we, re- we glorify you even now. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.